let's get into the, the message for this morning. We, uh, we've been going through a, a series called God's Story and Our Story, and the idea would be that throughout the summer, we'd take time to get to know, like, what's the big story of God so that I could even find what's my part, what's my role in that bigger story. Um, we, we live according to stories all the time. Some of us feel like we live in the Star Wars world or we wish we could, that that was you know, all around us at all times. Some of us wish we could live in the Harry Potter world. Some of us wish we could escape into whatever book we're reading or whatever. But like just shows and movies and all kinds of things that we're just churning through all the time because we just, we love stories. We eat it up and it gives meaning and purpose and direction to our life. And we're talking about what would it mean for Christians to be rooted in the biblical story because um, that is going to make all the difference in the world for uh, how we think, how we live, uh, the choices that we make, uh, the kind of uh, families that we bring up, the kind of neighbor that we are, um, in situations where we're, we're needing wisdom and direction. Um, if we're rooted in God's story, it's going to make all the difference in, in our lives. And so, uh, so this week, uh, we are talking about the Old Testament story. Um, we, we talked about creation uh, last week, and we're getting into the Old Testament now. And I'm excited for this one. I'm excited slash nervous, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but we live in a day and age where the biblical story, and especially the Old Testament story, has mostly been forgotten by people. Um, if anything, the Old Testament stories get relegated to the realm of, oh, those are some good stories for kids. Like, yeah, there's Daniel in the lion's den. So that's cute. The kids will like that part with the lions and, you know, uh, Noah's Ark, all those cute fluffy animals and, you know, David and Goliath. Those are fun stories for kids, but the adults don't usually go there. I find it hilarious that the Old Testament gets, becomes the storybook for kids because the Old Testament is not a children's book. I would not read most of the Old Testament stories to my two-and-a-half-year-old because it would, it would traumatize him. And then later when he'd be able to talk, we would have very interesting discussions and questions about stuff that I'm not prepared to talk to him about yet. There's even a recent publication of the Awkward Moments Children's Bible. Um, and it comes with a parental advisory on the bottom left. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you right now, in case you're about to go on Amazon and buy this, do not buy this. I do not recommend this book for you, okay? I do, listen, everybody look at me, look at me, look at me. I, Pastor Andy does not recommend that I buy this book, okay? All right, because, well, anyway, it's just, yeah, don't, just, just, just don't. Um, but this book helps to make the point that there's so many stories in the Bible that are not for kids, um, like the Noah's Ark story, which is entitled Floaters, um, where there's this select group of flood survivors who are looking over everyone and everything that didn't escape the flood. Um, that would be uncomfortable, trying to enjoy the view from the top deck of that cruise. Um, this is the tamest page of the book, you guys. Um, that is all I could show you because this is not a book written by Christians who honor um, God's word. Uh, I do not recommend buying, reading this book, okay? Um, maybe now you're more interested in reading it since I've set up so many do not read it. So you're like, I'm definitely gonna go to Barnes & Noble today. Um, okay, but, but all this reminds us that the Bible is an adult book. It deals with sex and betrayal, and murder, and adultery. Not only that, even though the Bible was written for us, um, it wasn't written to us. So there's a lot of stuff in there that you go, I don't even know what I'm reading right now. Why did they say that that way? Why did they do that thing? And you feel like you're going back in time, but you don't understand what's, what's happening all around you. 
if we're going to understand the message, then we got to first step into the sandals of the original audience of the people who are reading it for the very first time. And that takes work. That takes thought. That takes understanding and, and doing some homework. Otherwise, we're going to completely miss what the ancient readers would have understood. And we're going to walk away from stories like the flood. And we're going to think that God is this moral monster. We're going to think God's got all these skeletons in his closet and things that we need to be embarrassed about that we don't want to go, go there with our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus because we're like, this is going to scare him away. Now, if you're curious, here is a book that I recommend. Um, there's this fantastic book by Tremper Longman and John Walton, and it's called The Lost World of the Flood. And there's actually a whole series of Lost World books um, that uh, is just talking about different parts of the, the scriptures that would be lost to us because it's just this unknown world. And they take you into it and help you understand what's going on there. I don't recommend the Awkward Moments Children's Bible, but in this book, you'll find that the flood story is actually good news about God's commitment to the world. And if that's intriguing to you and you want to find out how, how is that supposed to work out with a flood story, uh, check this out. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. If you and I read the Bible well, then it gives us the outlook that Jesus and the apostles had who could look back on this story and see that it's full of all these examples of how God had been faithful. And my hope is that today we're going to come away with some good news. Um, and the first bit of good news is that wherever you're at when it comes to the word family, some of us come from a broken family, some of us come from a great family, come, some of us come from a non-existent family, some of us are trying to just, we're just starting from scratch and trying to do something totally new because what was handed to us wasn't all that great. The good news is that in the biblical story, you and I get grafted into a new family tree. Um, in Galatians 3, 7, and if you're taking notes, the, the, it's, it's 3 verse 7, I messed that up there. Um, Paul tells us that we who are followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we are children of Abraham by the faith of Abraham. If we live by the same kind of faith that Abraham has, there's the family resemblance. There's us being grafted into that family tree. And then I love how the prophet Isaiah puts it. He says, listen to me, you who are pursuing righteousness, you who are seeking the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut. Look to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was one man, but I blessed him, and I made him many. Um, there's even, uh, there's, there's a quarry, uh, there's a Starbucks and shop, the Safeway Shopping Center in Rockridge. Um, there, there's a little, like, lake pond there right behind the Safeway. That's a, that's a quarry right there if you want to uh, go somewhere and read these words and actually picture, picture a quarry and being cut out from that quarry. Because today we want to talk about being reconnected to our family tree, to be grafted into that story. We want to remember the rock that we were cut from and say, this, this is my story. This is my foundation. And this is such good news for us if we feel like I don't come from good stock. I, I, my story, my family tree is embarrassing. Um, there's, this, there's this amazing story that we get grafted into, but also it's, it's a family that's not full of heroes. It's not a family where everybody gets it right. Most of the time, we get it wrong, but it's this beautiful story and this family where we get to see God's faithfulness to this family, and that story becomes our story. We get to be a part of this rich family heritage to get to be a part of this family that has this role in God's mission to bring God's redemption to the world. And so God's story, it turns out, is our story because God has invited us to be a part of it. So as a church, we're going to discover more of how to be a blessing when we become rooted in God's story. And uh, so my task this morning, it's pretty simple. 
I just have to cover 1,800 years of Old Testament history. No big deal. I got this. Uh, I just need to take you from Genesis to Jesus in 30 minutes. So um, what's great is this is either going to totally work or you get a front row seat to me just like crashing and burning. So either way, it's going to be very entertaining. Um, but uh, let's do this. So 1,800 years of Old Testament history in the next 30 minutes. So to tell the Old Testament story, um, I'm going to follow the structure that the gospel writer Matthew gives to us. Um, in chapter one of his gospel, he lays out the big moments of the story like this. He, he says, uh, from Abraham to David, and then from David to the exile, and then the exile to Jesus. And in each of these stages, we're going to see that there's, that there's a key truth for how God pursues his mission to redeem the world. God's story um, moves along kind of like this. He'll call ordinary people to trust him, and then He'll keep his story moving even when people fail him, and then he brings that story to glorious fulfillment in Jesus. And so just let that be the lens through which you look for uh, just how God's working in his story as we move through this. And, and my hope is that we come away from this time even more convinced than ever that God, because God uh, guarantees his redemption of the world that he loves, you and I can live with confidence and freedom and joy and hope in the middle of our story. So let's begin this race through the Old Testament story. Uh, last week we saw that the story so far is that in Genesis 1, God brings a good world into an ordered existence, but then just two chapters later, uh, some of our Bibles, it's even just like two, two pages later, we see that humanity has this catastrophic fall and paradise is lost. And our relationships with God and with ourselves and with other people and with creation, all those relationships are full of strife. And by Genesis chapter 6, human wickedness has become so rampant, just this downward spiral. God even expresses grief that he made humans in the first place. He's just, his heart is so broken at how badly we've, we've messed this whole thing up. He had such dreams. He had such hopes for what we could be and what this place could be. But you see God grieving but then we also uh, see God's mercy. Noah and his family are going to be um, spared in this coming flood of judgment that's going to wipe the slate clean. Now again, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into to this, this story, but if you go into the lost world of the flood, um, there's a whole lot there where you're going to see God's commitment to his creation, and we're going to see God's mercy and then after the flood, God makes the first of many covenant promises. And this is what he says to Noah. He says, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creation. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. So right here in this first covenant promise, God affirms that he's deeply concerned, not just about humans, but the whole of creation. He's committed to all of creation and says, I promise my commitment is not just to you, but to all of creation. God has a plan to heal the world that's been spoiled. And so how's God going to do that? The, the camera starts off first at a wide angle, and then it starts to zoom in on this one particular man and woman, this family, Abraham and Sarah. And when they first start off, Abram and Sarai, and God says to Abram and Sarai, I want you to leave your country, and I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham and Sarah are called by God to trust and obey him. God doesn't really get into the details. He says, I want you to leave, 
and then I want you to go, but he doesn't get real specific about how that's all going to work out and what's going to happen. He just calls them to pull up their stakes and to trust him, leave the familiar, and just go where he directs, and amazingly, they do it. They, they're, they're told to go, and they go. And this is the part of the story where we witness the first of the three great truths about the Old Testament story, which is that God calls ordinary people to trust him. And these ordinary people living ordinary circumstances, Abram and Sarai, they trust him enough to obey him. And so with Noah, just like with Noah, then God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Your name will be great. And you're going to be a blessing. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. Like, that's a pretty big statement, you know? I'm not just going to bless your family. I'm not just going to bless your neighbors. This is going to be a blessing to the whole world, what I'm about to do in your life. Just blessing upon blessing, pouring out of God through this family. And not just for Abraham, not just for Sarah, but for all of humanity. You could sum up God's promise to Abraham with, uh, with three words. Um, let me hear you say seed, land, and blessing. So before Abraham's descendants can grow into a great nation, he needs actual descendants, so seed. And then he's going to need a place for that family to live, land. And then, f- uh, then for any of this to happen in the first place, he's going to need God's blessing because, hello, here's the deal. When Abraham received this promise, he was already 75 years old. No kids. 75 years old saying, I'm going to give you a family. And Sarah was only 10 years younger than him. So this promise seemed beyond belief. It seemed laughable. And the story is that Abraham and Sarah both laughed when they heard this news from God. But you should know, nothing is impossible with God. He's not intimidated by this. And so after decades of waiting, God gives them a son, and he's the promised seed. And he, they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Uh, I forget if they come up with his name or if God tells them to name him Isaac. But either way, uh, Isaac means laughter. And it's, it's this forever reminder of, hey, remember when God told us we were going to get pregnant and I was 75 and you were 65? Oh my gosh. And, and so his name is always this reminder of this really comical moment in, in their story when they're just like, no way, no way is this going to happen. This is, you're, God, you're being hilarious right now. But then Isaac becomes the father of Jacob and Esau. And at the end of Genesis, that son Jacob, we see him blessing his 12 sons who become the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the promise of this great nation, is, we're, we're, we're seeing it beginning to take shape. But then the plot thickens. Jacob's favorite son, and, and uh, I do not recommend favoritism if you already grew up in a family of favoritism or if you're slipping into that with your own kids. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, gets sold into slavery by his 12 jealous brothers. That's how far your kids could do this if you express favoritism. They could throw that kid into a pit and sell him to some Midianite traders with their camels, and he's gone. You never see him. So don't, don't do it, guys. But because God is with him, uh, Joseph rises to this position of authority in the Egyptian government. God works through Joseph to save many lives during the seven-year famine, including the lives of his brothers that sold him into slavery. And the whole family then 
there's this whole reconciliation moment that happens between them. It's beautiful. But then the whole family resettles in Egypt, and they have so many kids um, because they didn't, you know, they didn't have Netflix back then. There was nothing else to do. You just, you just make, make babies all the time. And uh, they, uh, they, they, they fill the nation. They become this multitude. But then later, an Egyptian king who, he's like, who's Joseph? Joseph who? He has no memory of this guy. He, this new pharaoh comes to power, and he is intimidated by this huge uh, immigrant population in his country. And he's just thinking, if, if these guys keep doing what they're doing, they're going to they're gonna take over. Um, he, he, so he presses them into slavery. But God doesn't forget his promise to Abraham and to his family. God then, in this moment, calls Moses, and under his leadership, God rescues them out of Egypt. And they begin this long trek through the wilderness to the land that God had promised to Abraham. And there's this really powerful moment where they come to Mount Sinai, and God makes another promise that should remind you, you should probably hear an echo of what we learned about last week, about what God has created and called human beings to do. God promises to make this family into a kingdom of priests. Does that sound familiar to what we talked about last week? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's intent is to form this family who's going to be a light to the surrounding nations, a family that's going to live as his redemptive agents in the world. They're going to carry out his shalom in their relationships with each other and with creation. And everybody should be able to look at this and just be like, this is incredible. Look what, look what this society is like in their agriculture, in their architecture, in their meals, in their sexual ethics, in everything. They're told, bring my shalom be this kingdom of priests, be this holy nation, be a light to the world. Now, I want to I pause here a moment because, one, that was, that was a lot. Uh, that, was, that was an Old Testament fire hose of, of all kinds of things. But um, how God calls Israel uh, is a really fascinating reflection of, of who God is and how he works. Um, it's, it's really important to just take a moment and, and remember that the Old Testament is not a story about all these lives that we want to imitate. The Old Testament is not chock full of all these heroes that we go, oh man, okay, so that's how you're supposed to have a marriage, and that's how you're supposed to have kids, and that's how you're supposed to deal fairly with other people. No, most of the time, uh, God would be saying, Don't, do not look at these people as your heroes and your examples of how I want humans to live. That's not the point of the Old Testament. Most of the time, most of the time this family's really dysfunctional. Most of the time, the family gets it really bad. Uh, and just totally miss the mark, and yet God keeps calling them to be an example to their surrounding nations of what a society could look like if Yahweh was king, and God gives them Torah, which means instruction, and the laws that he lays out for them, they look a lot like a law code that you'd see in the ancient world, but if you look closely, even comparing it to other law codes in the ancient world, you're going to see that it's, it's different, and you're going to actually see that it's better, it is better to be a woman in, the, in Israel in, with this family than it is to be a woman anywhere else in the ancient Near East. It is better to be poor in this family than anywhere else in the ancient Near East. It is better to be a foreigner and of another ethnicity than anywhere else uh, in the ancient Near East. God's intent was for all the other nations to look at how things were going in this family and say, whoa, so like there's another way to do this. There's another way. It's, there's a, a better way. Something else is possible, but I had to see it with my own eyes first. So I want to talk about this for a minute because um, this has to do with, with holiness. 
Uh, holiness means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means you stand out. It means you're, you're, here's, here's everybody else, and here's you. In Leviticus 19.2, God says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So I'm set apart. I'm totally different than all the other gods that you have grown up knowing about. I'm different, and, and I want you to reflect that in the world. I want you to be different like I'm different. God says, be holy like me. What we're supposed to take away from this is holy is not the same as holier than thou. We ourselves have, I'm sure we've all met holier than thou people. We, maybe you've been that person uh, from time to time. Uh, where other people feel judged or uh, compared or lesser than because whenever they're around you or you, f- you feel that way when you're around that person. Holiness is not the same as holier than thou. God says, I want you to be like me. Holiness is about reflecting God's character, his good character to everybody around us. So if that's the case, here's what I want us to talk about. What should people experience when they meet people who are holy? Should they feel morally inferior? Should they, oh, can we get the next slide, Kevin? Um, Should they feel morally inferior? Should they experience life and help and goodness? What's it like to be in the presence of somebody who's holy? Is holiness only something that super Christians get to have, or is that something that's possible for all of us? So let's talk about this for a little bit. Circle up with maybe like two or three other people. What's holiness supposed to look like? What's it supposed to be like? Let's talk about that. Go for it. Awesome, guys. So, um, so that, that's our calling also. That's our part in God's story is, is to figure out how to be holy like God's holy. Um, so after the wilderness journey, um, there's the next part of, of the promise to Abraham. We said seed, but then the next thing that's needed is land. And so we see God call this other, in, this another individual who's going to take the story further. During the time of Joshua and the Israelites of that generation, we see God fulfill his promise, not just of seed, of descendants, but of land for that, those descendants to live. And they begin to move into that land that was, that was promised to them. And that's, that's where one of the really amazing passages is that a lot of people will have this like framed in their house where it says, choose today who you'll serve. But as for me and my household, we're going we're gonna to serve the Lord. Um, those, those, those were words from Joshua during that time as they were moving in uh, to say, okay, as we're here, what kind of people are we going to be? Who are we going to serve? But it's really sad. In the generation after Joshua, the people begin to lose their way. They begin to forget what had been handed to them and what they were supposed to carry on. And they begin to adopt the practices of their neighbors around them. And so then the book of Judges follows Joshua, and Judges describes this continuous cycle of Israel's sin, and then they get subjugated by their neighbors, and then they cry out for help, and God rescues them. And just like shampoo, rinse and repeat, this just keeps happening again and again. This is a really sad part of, of God's story, and, the, and Judges just ends on the, the saddest, most broken, dark note that you could ever imagine. What is that? Go read it. You'll, you'll see, and then you'll be really depressed. Uh, but this, this is a really sad part of, of the story. And yet, and yet, God sticks with this dysfunctional family. His plan to bless the world is not going to get thwarted just because humans fail. Still, something's got to change. This is not, this is not good. The story's really taken a dark turn. And so the change comes in the book of Samuel. It's kind of like this was the dark ages for Israel, and then this candle gets lit, and then there's, there's hope that it's not always going to be so dark. 
And uh, Samuel, the book of Samuel is the part where we start to see Israelite kings, and it's where we meet David, the shepherd king, but not at first. That's not how the book of Samuel starts. It starts with a woman named Hannah, and I love this. Hannah is like so many women today who find themselves in a world of hurt. And her specific hurt was that she was childless in a culture where raising children was the epitome of what made you a woman. That, that gave you worth and value and significance. And if you couldn't have kids, people started to talk about you and kind of wonder, what, what's going on in their life? Why doesn't God like her? Uh, he obviously hasn't, he hasn't, hasn't favored her. And, uh, and in her specific situation, her, her husband took on a second wife, maybe to be the baby maker of the family. We're not really sure. But this second wife, this woman, made Hannah absolutely miserable. And in her misery, um, Hannah's got some options. The story tells us that Hannah's husband loved her, loved Hannah. So she could have used that love as a weapon against the, the second wife and said, yeah, you can have kids, but he loves me. She could have fought fire with fire in that situation. She also could have just repressed all of her pain and, and avoided the rival wife and just distracted herself and numbed herself. But she didn't choose fight and she didn't choose flight. She took her pain to God and she poured out her heart to him. And from this honest engagement of this ordinary woman in ordinary pain, God changed history. He gave her a son who was going to become a prophet. And this prophet is going to grow up to anoint Israel's first two kings and lead them out of the dark ages. So again and again, we see that God calls ordinary people to trust him. Hannah was an ordinary person. She lived out an ordinary faithfulness. God worked through that ordinary faithfulness to do something extraordinary, and God could do the same thing in our time through my life and yours. And I love what Eugene Peterson has to say, say about the story of God. Um, he says this, he says, one of the wonderful things to me about the Bible is that there really are no heroes. The stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the brothers, they're all full of people like us that do stupid things, and they're still in the story. Nobody gets ejected. I love that. The people that God calls, they're, they're not all that unique. They're not all that extraordinary or powerful. A lot of them are pretty insignificant. And yet, God calls and chooses people just like us, people who will do stupid things, people who will say stupid things, people who will go, here I am again? Really? Man, I thought I was over that. I thought I was past that. Those people are still in the story, and so that's the hope for you and I too. Nobody gets ejected. Isn't that great? So the first king that Samuel is called uh, to anoint is uh, Saul. And Saul is, Saul is like the hero everybody was looking for. He looked the part. He's tall. He's handsome. He's impressive. He looks like what people were picturing when they said, we want a king. But Saul ultimately fails because of, just because he has all these great external qualities, he lacks any trust in God. And we just see again and again that in the moments when he's called to trust God, he backs off and he just trusts himself and takes matters into his own hands. And God's like, I can't work with this guy. He fails again and again. David becomes the second king of Israel, and he's different from Saul in that he is easily overlooked. He is, his story, when, when Samuel is coming to meet Jesse, uh, David's dad, and, and God told him one of these guys, this guy has sons, and one of these sons is going to be uh, the future king of Israel, Samuel's looking for a guy who looks kingly, 
And Jesse, David's dad, didn't even invite David in for the, the, the king picking party. He left him out with the sheep because he thought, absolutely no way is my son David the one that God has in mind. It's got to be one of my other sons. But because God doesn't judge by human appearance, because God looks at the heart, God chooses David. David becomes king. He becomes an amazing king. And once he establishes the boundaries of that kingdom, he starts to think, you know what? Um, I need to now build a house. I need to build a temple for God. God's been doing this temporary tent thing out at Shiloh. I want to give God a permanent house. He's established us. I want to establish God's house. But instead, God makes David this amazingly remarkable promise. God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. Your house and your throne will be established forever. Even the sin of David and his descendants did not derail God's promise to bless the world through this family. David eventually, he starts off great, but then towards the end of his story, man, he just blows it. Um, he sins royally. He, there's adultery, there's murder, there's a government cover-up. Sin, he sins royally against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, and then David's sons sin repeatedly. But we see that God doesn't give up. In David's case, God gives a prophet named Nathan, which means God gives. God gives the gift of this prophet who's going to speak an honest word and expose what David tried to cover up. And when David faces his sin, he repents fully and genuinely, and God spares his life. And uh, so then David actually ends up with Bathsheba, and they have a son, and God, God makes good of all this wreckage, all this brokenness, and he gives him a son named Solomon. And here, this is where we see the second important truth of God's story, which is that God keeps his story moving along even when people fail him. He calls ordinary people to call, call him, but he also then keeps that story moving along when those people fail him. David's son, Solomon, is a perfect example of this because Solomon starts off great. He's blessed with so much wisdom, and yet he turns from following God with all of his heart. The story tells us that this happened in his life really gradually, all these little, all these little detours, not like big things, but just like lots of little things that eventually, after enough detours, you're not heading God's direction anymore. He begins to marry foreign women, even though God had said that his kings should not rely on political marriages and political alliances. He becomes an arms dealer, stockpiling horses and chariots, even though God said that Israel's kings were not supposed to trust in military machinery, they were supposed to trust in him. He begins to tax God's people really heavily, even though God had promised, I, was, I will provide everything that you need. And I, he, God had explicitly said to Israelite kings, you're not to accumulate wealth because that's going to lead your heart away from, from my heart. And so little by little, these detours chipped away at Solomon's faithfulness to God, and he's going in a totally different direction from God's call in his life. So then after Solomon, it's not too long before then the kingdom is divided into a north and a south. Uh, Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, and the northern kingdom is eventually conquered by this kingdom, the kingdom of Assyria. They, they have gone so far from God's heart that God says, okay, clearly you don't want me to be king and God, so God pulls back his protection and allows in Assyria, and then the same thing eventually happens to the southern kingdom. They get taken over by the nation, uh, the kingdom of Babylon. So God's people are no longer in the land, and at this point it would seem like the story is over. They're in exile, and it seems like, 
I guess this is it. I guess, you know, great idea initially, but this whole thing tanked. Abraham's family, they're out of the promised land. They're essentially in slavery. And this is a really tragic and terrible ending to a story that's held so much promise. And so we're left wondering, is that it? And that's, that's what God's family in exile, that's what they were wondering in their situation. God, are, are you done with us? Did you forget about us? Is our story over? And God's answer through his prophets was a definitive no. The story is not over. I'm not done with you. God reaffirmed all those promises that he made long ago. He reaffirmed his promise to Noah and to Abraham and the promise he made at Mount Sinai and the promise that he made to David because God keeps his word even if we don't. And if we trace the promises, we see that what's happening is that step by step, the camera keeps zooming in closer and closer to God's ultimate plan for how he's going to bless and redeem the world. It starts off God's promise to Noah. It's for all of creation. Zoom in a little closer. God's promise to Abraham. It's for all people. Zoom in a little bit closer. God's promise at Mount Sinai. It's to a nation. And then God's promise to David is to a king, to a royal family line. We're looking for a king who's going to be the, the solution to what God's up to. And God keeps all of those promises. How does he keep the promise? In a word, Jesus. And I don't want you to miss next Sunday, uh, but we're going to see that Jesus, he is the answer. He is God's yes to all of these promises. Jesus is the king, the Davidic king from David's family. He ends up being the true Israelite, the one who can actually follow God and do the God thing when everybody else fails him. He is the, the son of Abraham, the son of the promise the son through whom blessing is going to go out to the whole world, and he's the redeemer of all. God cares about all of creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world. This thing's going out to the entire cosmos. So don't miss next Sunday. There's a whole lot more good news when it comes to Jesus. We're going to talk all about Jesus next Sunday, but there's a lot of good news for today. Uh, our, Our race through the 1800 years of Old Testament history Um, has revealed a lot of stuff about God's character to us. For one thing, um, we've seen that God moves his story and our stories along as he calls ordinary people to trust him. He keeps that story going even when people fail him, and he brings that story to glorious fulfillment in Jesus. This is who God is. This is what God does. You can trust this. You can trust this story. You can trust the one who's authoring this story. Jesus followers who are rooted in God's story, they can have confidence that they love a God who is worthy of their trust. We have a God who is bigger than our failures. We have a God who, I love this in 2 Timothy, if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't disown himself. He's just going to be who he is. Jesus, our Savior, is proof that God always keeps his promise. And we have a God who's not going to be thwarted in his desire to redeem the entire world cosmos.